This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Item number one. The Wayne State University Board of Governors in Detroit is at war with each other. It's an internal battle, splitting one half of an eight-member board against the other half. It's all involving the president, whoever that is. He's there right now, but half the board wants him gone. Whether they hike tuition, whether they lease a building on Mack Avenue in Detroit, the last meeting they had, four of the members showed up. The others boycotted the meeting. The ones present used the president, who is not an elected member of the board, as a tiebreaker to achieve a quorum, even though he couldn't vote. And then they went ahead and they improved the tuition hike. And they leased the building on Mack Avenue and did several other things. Well, The four members who didn't show up were very angry about this, and they sued the four members who showed up for the meeting. Now, that is still in court, and a judge says she is going to make a ruling on this within the next week. Item number two. Here is a state agency that is extremely obscure. Nobody knows about it. It's called the Public Service Commission. used to get a lot of attention. People should pay attention to it because they are the chief regulators of energy, of the utility companies in Michigan. Well, Governor Gretchen Whitmer just made her second appointment to this three-member commission. The appointment is Tremaine Phillips, and he was a former Jennifer Granholm aide in what was called DLEG, the Department of Labor and Economic Growth, Some 15 years ago, uh, he has been named to the commission by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and that's her second appointment. It's a three-member panel, and it really flips control of the panel to what is considered the more liberal, pro-environmental side of the equation, at least in the energy community who really understand these things. So we're not probably going to hear much about these people and what they do until there's a blackout or until something really goes wrong with our energy and power in Michigan, and then everybody will say, well, who is on this Public Service Commission? Why aren't they doing something? And uh, you've got your answer here today. Two of the three members appointed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Sally Talberg, by the way, will continue on the commission. She's the only one that Governor Whitmer has not appointed directly. She was appointed by former Governor Rick Snyder, and she's the chair. But Gretchen Whitmer is keeping her on as the chair. Now, item number three, you may remember last week we talked about a new study of local leadership effectiveness that ranked the city of Flint as one of the worst operating cities in the United States. Well, get this. Flint's national ranking was almost the same five years ago or 10 years ago before the Flint water crisis, and that was on the bottom of all municipalities of its size and larger, which number in the hundreds. Yet, 
as Flint struggled over the past decade to escape its reputation for fiscal incompetence and dysfunction, the kind of stories the news media produced on the Flint water crisis were guaranteed to make sure that Flint will never recover. The way the media and selected politicians and interest groups, almost all of whom have never lived in Flint and never will, used the Flint water crisis had little to do with the facts on the ground and everything to do with their own agendas, whether it was environmental or racial or socioeconomic. Flint was a sitting duck, a helpless target for the title of hopeless, helpless victim of corporate America, which was interested, according to the media, only in the bottom line by higher-ups at the state or national levels. Has anything changed recently? No. These groups and the media keep their jackboots on the throats of the city. Its residents are depicted as pathetic, ignorant, inarticulate victims who can do little but beseech taxpayers in the rest of the state and around the country to bail them out. Guess what? That strategy has worked. Flint has been awarded half a billion dollars in aid to help it recover from what has been repeatedly described as, quote, poisoning, unquote. When all is said and done, Flint eventually will have a better quality water system than just about every community in Michigan. But can you believe this? A segment of Flint's population will not believe it. They don't accept it. They've been told repeatedly they have been poisoned and they will never believe the water is safe to drink or use in any other way. And the city will continue to have the same reputation as what it's got in the most recent Wallet Hub study, which we talked about last week, which was of thousands of American communities in which Flint ranks virtually last in every category. Remember Camden, New Jersey? Well, it still exists. It used to be at the bottom of national rankings of American cities of any size. Camden is very grateful. Nobody writes or talks about it anymore. Flint has taken its place. Flint is the basket case of America, even though it doesn't serve that, deserve that title any more than Camden once did. And one thing more, in the endless search for people to blame and charge with criminal wrongdoing in the Flint water crisis, there is a new target. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has reiterated her belief that incompetence from three private engineering firms was a principal cause of the Flint water crisis. Nessel says that, and I'm going to quote here, it has become clear through documents obtained in discovery that the consultants made repeated missteps and engaged in reckless behavior. While the firms continue to rely on their own distorted view of the facts, we, meaning Dana Nessel and her attorney general department, stand by our complaint, which is backed by the evidence. Our attorneys are working around the clock to ensure these companies are held accountable for their role in causing the crisis, unquote. Meanwhile, the companies have asked Circuit Judge Richard Ewell in Genesee County 
to dismiss the complaints, arguing that the responsibility for the crisis lies with the government and officials responsible for the oversight of the Flint water system. No court date has been set yet for these motions. Well, folks, guess what? This won't satisfy the segment of Flintstones who believe they have been poisoned. It's too late. That train has left the station, as they say. These citizens want something or someone other than a faceless out-of-town engineering firm to be held culpable and charged accordingly. And even if that happens, these people will never believe the water in Flint is safe. This will be a continuing story with no end in sight. Now, there is a mayoral election going on in Flint. The incumbent mayor, Karen Weaver, is running for re-election to a full four-year term. She is opposed by three males in the August primary upcoming. Uh, She was very angry about a week ago. She told the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency that it had no reason to issue a letter publicly raising concerns about staffing at the city's water treatment plant. Uh, She went on to say that the letter uh, reported from treatment plant operators to the state had shown an operator trainee quit and various other evidence of malfeasance. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this mayoral race and one of her opponents we hope to have on and a guest later in the show. Right now we're going to take a break, but stay tuned. we got some exciting stuff coming up. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have our first guest, very interesting expert on the city of Birmingham here in Michigan. He is David Bloom. He has worked in the automotive industry and business development, sales, and purchasing roles throughout his career. And five years ago, David became a founding member of the Birmingham Citizens for Responsible Government, which led the effort to defeat Birmingham's $21.5 million library bond proposal by a whopping margin of 76 to 24 percent. Afterwards, David worked with the library on a much more modest renovation plan, saving residents over $15 million, phase one of which was completed in 2017 and phase two of which begins construction this fall. He's also been active in Birmingham with other community issues. But right now there is a proposal that's going to be on the August primary ballot in Birmingham on building a new parking ramp. And it has really provoked a lot of controversy. And I'd like David to explain to us what's going on. David Bloom, welcome to The Political Insider. Thank you, Bill, for the wonderful introduction. And I wish I knew what was going on, but I don't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, This is a very bad proposal for Birmingham. It's a very good proposal for the developers, and that's part of the problem. This is supposed to be a public-private partnership that started with increasing parking spaces in Birmingham, developing a very beautiful undeveloped parcel in Birmingham. It's a gem. It's right by, it's hard to tell it's a gem, but it's right by the Rouge River and it's right across from, from Booth Park. Um, so there is a plan now on the table to demolish the current deck, move it back from the street about 70 feet, build a 
55,000 square foot restoration hardware gallery, which actually sounds and seems pretty cool. Um, and then phase two would be two other buildings. Um, one of the problems are these are this would supposedly add 400 parking spaces. Um, these would be very expensive parking spaces. Um, if you look at the cost of the bond and the interest and what's coming out of the, the city fund parking fund to pay for it, it, it's $80 million spent over 30 years to add 400 parking spaces. That's $200,000 of space. It's three floors underground and seven parking floors above ground, including the roof. Um, so it's very expensive. Um, then you've got RH coming in, and instead of selling the land that the developers would be using, the city would be leasing the property to the developers for 99 years, which is also problematic for some Birmingham residents. And the lease option is not on the ballot. So the residents are being told they're voting for a parking deck, and what they're getting is a parking deck plus leasing to a group of developers for two consecutive 50-year leases, which is basically 100 years. Well, is this a little bit kind of like the library proposal where you worked to defeat it, it was defeated, and then they scaled it back, and that apparently is working out pretty well? Do you think something along that line could eventually develop if you can just defeat this proposal? Is that the idea? Well, the idea is this is a really bad project for Birmingham um, in terms of this, in terms of this cost, in terms of this development, in terms of working with, unfortunately, this development team. Um, I have publicly said that I would like, I'm not anti-development. I would like Restoration Hardware, now called RH, to come to Birmingham. I'd like us to have a plan B so we can, so we can do something else. I'd like to get more input. The city said they've been planning this for, for, for several years, but the project's really been rushed. It didn't go to the planning board until after it was put on the ballot. Um, there still isn't a parking study or uh, a, um, a, a traffic study done. Um, I don't even think the environmental study was done. The former chairman of the planning board complained to the city commission about how rushed this project was. So I w- it would be wonderful to defeat this and then come up with something better for the residents of Birmingham, and I would love to be a part of that. Yeah, some city managers claim that government incentives are virtually a necessity when redeveloping older downtowns. Uh, there's a guy named um, in Royal Oak, the city manager, uh, I think his name is Don Johnson, is quoted as saying, you almost cannot build anything in a downtown these days without offering fairly generous incentives. Every office building that's going up here, we have skin in the game, unquote, according to Johnson. I mean, does that make sense? And is the problem the city is maybe giving too much incentive to these developers? Um, wow, that, that, that's a lot to address. Birmingham is a very attractive place to be. People want, to, people want to be here. People want to come here. People want to invest here. The subsidies that this developer are, are, are being given um, are, are huge. Um, there's the 99-year lease. Um, the developers are basically getting a parking deck to put up their development. The city is paying for it. The, the developers have sent out so far seven mailers um, to the home saying, get a free parking deck. It won't cost you anything. The developers want this parking deck so they can use the parking for their development. The city is saying this will create 400 new spaces, but the city is using incorrect um, parking calculations. They're not even following their own zoning code. So this new parking structure would gobble up. The, the RH would use at least half of the parking spaces in this new de- in, in this new deck for the city's own code. And the city's saying that the numbers are much less than that because they're using the wrong numbers. And I challenged the city manager on that last night. So 
is it okay to, to subsidize development if it's going to be a benefit to the residents in the town? Absolutely it is. But the subsidies here are massive, and they're way, they're, they're, they're way over-needed. There is, I would say, pork or a lot of gravy put in this proposal. There's practically $2 million of fees on top of fees that the developer, the developers and the contractors are the same people, but there's a development, there's a developer fee um, on top of the, the, of the construction fee for the developers to manage the contractors, but it's the same people. So we're paying the developers to manage themselves, which is a conflict of interest. So because of that, the city is now looking at spending another $2 million on top of that to have someone else come in to manage the developers who are managing the contract. So that's another $3.6 million of Birmingham taxpayer money that's going down the drain to fund some kind of Ponzi scheme. There have been a number of public meetings in Birmingham, I think, about this, including the city commission. And it sounds like people who've tried to speak up about this, including yourself, have been muzzled by the commissioners. They've uh, cut you off. They've uh, adjourned the meetings. Uh, What's going on there? Why are the public officials so reluctant to let people express their opinion about this? I think what has happened is, is the no side has been gaining quite a bit of traction in Birmingham. And I think the city and the developer are scared that the no people are going to win, so they are taking risks and stifling people's rights. And the city has been sending out mailers to everyone's home, disparaging the no side arguments, calling them this, advocating, in fact, for the yes side. So there are a lot of invested officials that want this and developers and connected people that want this deal to go through, and they're doing whatever they can, even if it involves breaking the law and trampling on people's rights to do it. Couldn't there be criticism of the city and or the developers using taxpayer money to send out mailings? Is that what they're doing? Or have they sent a a private fund to pay for their pushback and saying that the no supporters are wrong? I mean, you can't use taxpayer money, right? The city found a way to do it. So the law is the Michigan Campaign Finance Act that um, the city is city is allowed to provide information, they're not allowed to advocate. The Secretary of State's office has, has said that advocating means saying vote yes or no. So the city has basically gone up to that line by calling the no side arguments myths. Wow. Well, listen, we could keep talking about this and your campaign, and there's not much time left, right, until the election. It's just uh, less than three weeks off, isn't it? Yes. Thank you very much for your right. interest, Bill. Thanks a lot, David Bloom. City of Birmingham, a lot of opposition to the parking deck. We'll be back in a second. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned. We were talking a few minutes ago about the beleaguered city of Flint, and uh, we're very fortunate to have as our guest, State Representative Sheldon Neely of the 34th State House of Representatives District. Uh, He is a candidate for mayor against the incumbent Karen Weaver. He's got a couple of other opponents in the race, uh, primary coming up in August. Top two finishers will go on to the November general election runoff. Uh, Sheldon Neely was on the Flint City Council for nine years. Uh, He had a career in broadcast engineering, and he was president of his local communication 
Education Workers Union, I believe. Uh, Sheldon Neely, welcome to the Political Insider. Well, thank you for having me, and good morning to you and all your listeners. Well, Sheldon, I just want to ask you, how is the campaign going? What about uh, the kind of job Karen Weaver is doing, and what are you saying that means voters should pick you to replace her? Well, you know, the campaign is going. It's pretty pretty warm outside. You know, we're still doing our canvassing and going door to door to talk to voters and, and ask them to look into our record, uh, a proven record of, a, of achieving uh, goals and, and, and improving the quality of life for residents that we represent. Uh, and the difference between uh, the Karen Weaver camp and my and my camp is that we do have a proven record of success in, in improving the quality of life for residents uh, in the state of Michigan and also in the city of Flint. It seems to me that you know her her administration is uh, is a chaotic type of activity. You know, it's, they're they're moving about and they're wrecking things, and uh, we need to move forward uh, beyond our water crisis uh, in the city of Flint. Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, I think it was last week or early this week, uh, you called for appointment of a crime task force. And this was in the wake of a couple of uh, shooting deaths, I think. Uh, And she fired back saying, we've already got a crime task force. Like, uh, you know, things have been improving here in Flint, and the police chief came out and supported her and so forth. Well, now, Flint is ranked the sixth most violent city in the United States, so I don't think she exactly has a record to be proud of. Uh, How do you react to her reaction to you? Well, that, that's the type of thing that uh, that she does. You know, she does uh, Donald Trump better than Donald Trump himself. You know, when they try to divert things from the real attention, uh, we have a crime issue, and, and it shows a gross lack in critical thinking, even from the police department, to say that you know um, crime is down when we're talking about the uptick of violent crime. We're talking about you know more than a dozen shootings in a, in a 20-day period, not shoot people shot at, but people shot. Even two days ago, another young man, uh, 18 years old, was shot and killed. And tragically, his grandmother lost her life from a person that carjacked a person, and they and they broadsided uh, the young man's grandmother. So we had two fatalities in the same family in one night uh, through the uptake in crime. And we understand in urban communities and inner city areas, uh, crime gets uh, a little bit more rampant uh, in the summertime, and we have to do uh, take progressive actions, in making sure that we suppress crime where we can and to deter crime uh, where we can to safeguard lives. And for their uh, for their response to be um, crime is down. Uh, and not to take proactive actions when we see, you know, five people shot in the car one evening, three people shot and killed, in, you know, uh, in the ensuing days. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they have their head in the sand, and that's not the way that you run a community and, and protect people, residents, just by ignoring it. They should have said, uh, once upon a time, and then ended with happily ever after, because most great fables begin and end with those things, because we understand in the city of Flint um, that live there, understand that crime is, is not down, and when you have major crime, like shootings, uh, we need to take action. Um, you know, the, the top three police officers that surround her, uh, they don't live in the city of Flint. Uh, her chief advisor, he doesn't live in the city of Flint. And most of the clergy that supports her closely, they don't live in the city of Flint. And so for them to make those type of statements is, is really disrespectful to those who have to live inside the community. Yeah, another thing uh, Mayor Weaver was irritated about was the U.S. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency. They apparently sent a letter uh, publicly raising concerns about staffing at the city's water treatment plant. She claimed that this letter was unnecessary, that she's on top of it. Uh, What is your reaction to, again, her reaction to the EPA? I mean, 
the quality of water in Flint is a big deal, right? Absolutely it is, and, and we should be on, on the precipice of having the best water in the, in the country right now because of all the resources and the science that's went into repairing the problems that has happened. Uh, but when you have an administration that's very resistant and you have very little capacity in order to perform the duties as necessary, and when you have uh, other governmental bodies telling you that you need uh, to do better things, and they ignore them, we, we have a real issue and a real problem. When you have uh, uh, issue with you know, two co-equal branches of government with your city administration and your city council, and then you are warring with them all the time and, and business of the city and the residents are not being taken care of, those are things that we really need to uh, take serious. And that's why I made the decision to do an about-face and come back to the city of Flint and leave Lansing, where I'm doing very well. I'm on the most powerful committees there. I'm in leadership. Uh, we're doing very, very well. Uh, in Lansing representing uh, the city of Flint and other Michiganders, but I cannot in good conscience uh, turn my back on the residents of the city of Flint, especially when they have failed leadership uh, in the Weaver administration. There's no capacity there. You see people abandoning ship. You saw the, the chief financial officer leave. You saw the second in charge in the finance department leave. You saw a city administrator leave. You saw a city attorney leave. You saw human resourcing people leave. You see purchasing directors leave. And so when all, all those things happen, you have these multiple failures uh, that we see. You know, uh, more than 7,000 letters went out to residents terrifying them, saying they were going to lose the, their homes because they didn't pay their water bills. And then the administration says, oh, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. Or we see uh, something happening with the bidding process for residents to get their homes beautified and their, their yards beautified for these with the contractors. And they said, oh, it was a mistake. Oh, we're sorry. we got to redo it. Man, that shows a lack of capacity. And so we have to really pay attention to what's going on and, and make a, uh, a big change here in the city of Flint so we can move forward. Representative, what about the city's finances? After all, that's one of the reasons we had a Flint water crisis, because the state appointed an emergency manager. Is everything hunky-dory with the city's budget and finances right now? Everything's cured? They got plenty of money? What's going on? No, no. We just saw with the budget process under the Home Rule Act, you know, which the city of Flint has been restored to uh, uh, control. We saw a, a tennis match between the city council and the administration. The, the mayor uh, presented her budget uh, in absence of a finance director that had turned the budget in and then resigned his post. And then the city council reviewed the budget, and they found out uh, grave errors, like they for, uh, forgot to add dollars in to uh, have people uh, uh, post uh, the election and, and election workers. They found failures in that, and they found multiple failures in other places. So they overturned the mayor's budget and presented a new budget. The mayor then vetoed what the council did, and then the council then overrode the veto. So that tells you that there's not a lot of, uh, of good faith in what they're doing and doing the budget process. And, and so, you know, we have a, a, a crisis in public safety uh, and uh, other things that's going on. You know, they failed to uh, finance the police department uh, to an adequate level, in my opinion, to deal with the uptick in crime that's happening currently. But they did not fail to give her a $34,000 raise. They did not fail to do those type of things. And when we talk about just a $34,000 raise and the mayor's salary, we got to look at what the starting level is for a new police officer or a new firefighter. $31,000 for a, police, a firefighter for a full year. Uh, $34,000 for police officers. So so when we talk about, they say they need more money for public safety, she took one uh, one of those public safety officers off 
just for her increase. Yeah, you represent most of the city, Representative Neely. Um, there's a piece of it that's represented by State Representative John Cherry II, uh, I think is the son of the former state senator and uh, lieutenant governor, John Cherry. How does he feel about uh, Mayor Weaver? Has he said anything in this campaign? You know, uh, he preceded Phil Phelps, uh, which we worked with Phil Phelps and myself and Senator Annette. We worked very well, uh, you know, trying to represent the residents of the city of Flint as well as our Genesee County delegation. Uh, You know, we were successful in sending uh, more than $262 million from the state side uh, to the city of Flint for recovery and working together and trying to uh, build more capacity inside the city. But it's almost like being a superstar quarterback, you know, and, and, and having no receivers. And so what ends up, at the end of the day, you, you're a good quarterback uh, on a bad team. And so the, <laughs> the city administration has failed to catch the ball, failed to do the, the work that's necessary, and that's why they have to be ejected from the team. And so we have to get another receiver so we can catch uh, those footballs. And John Cherry Jr., Jim Ananek, Tim Sneller, uh, Cheryl Kennedy, those are Tennessee County delegations. And with those quarterbacks throwing things from the state to a receiver like Sheldon Neely at the American City of Flint, we will make more touchdowns. Representative, we, we got we to gotta get out. Listen, you've been a tremendous guest. We could keep going. We're just out of time. We'll have to get you back. Uh, good luck in August in the primary. Thank you very much, Representative Sheldon Neely. Thank you. God bless. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back again. We're talking to somebody from the city of Flint, but a slightly different take on it. Uh, We have got Dr. Bobby Muhammala, who uh, is a man of many parts. Uh, He's done just about everything. He's a civic activist, a hero in the community, and uh, he's an otolaryngologist. Uh, head and shoulders doctor, maybe a little bit more. He could elaborate if he wants to. But Dr. Bobby McCamela, thank you very much for being on The Political Insider. Oh, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Well, listen, uh, you have, I think, been elevated to, uh, as I understand it, what, vice president of the Michigan State Medical Society, and you're in line to eventually become president. And uh, I'd just like to hear about that. And also, I want to get into the issues that the Michigan State Medical Society is concerned about here in Michigan and elsewhere. Sure, sure. Yep, yep. So um, technically speaking, I'm what they call president-elect of the Michigan State Medical Society. Um, So next in line to be president after the current president's term finishes up in just under a year. Um, And so, yes, you you are correct. And it's been uh, an honor to to be elected by my peers to do it. Obviously, healthcare in in the state and in the country is in a constant state of flux. There's lots of things that need attention, and, and the state medical societies, uh, the Michigan State Medical Society, are sort of in a unique position to lend a doctor's perspective as people are contemplating how to fix what's wrong in the system and improve it. And uh, it's nice to be, you know, at the helm for a year to uh, to lend my experience to that position. Absolutely. What about the issues the Michigan State Medical Society is concerned about here in Michigan? I mean, what do they think state government, for instance, should be focusing on with respect to uh, the medical condition, the health condition of Michigan citizens? Yeah, I mean, I guess when we look at it, when I look at the state of health care in the state of Michigan and even the country for that matter, there's just a lot of inefficiencies when I look and see sort of what my office staff 
is doing. Um, you know, my mom was a, is a retired pediatrician. She practiced in the Flint area from the mid-70s until the late 90s. And she did that with pretty much two office staff members her entire career. And I look and I've got three times that number of people working in my office just to sort of keep up with the requirements um, that are on us to practice medicine, right? And, and treating people's ears, nose, and throat condition hasn't gotten any harder than it was in the 70s and 80s. I mean, so it's not medically speaking that's created this complication. It's sort of more of the red tapes. And, and one example of one thing that the State Medical Society is working on a lot right now is the issue of prior authorization, right? The fact that if I see somebody whose nose is so crooked they can't breathe through it and they're getting sinus problems and I say, you know what, you should probably have that fixed, you'll feel better. It's not just between me and the patient at that point. We need to go through another hurdle of getting prior authorization for that, which can sometimes happen within hours and sometimes takes weeks and sometimes doesn't happen at all. And that's just, you know, it doesn't make any sense that in this country, every doctor in the country has 1.5 FTEs in their offices working on just prior authorization. So it's just an example of inefficiency that can be fixed if the right people set their mind to fix it. And that's what our goal is, um, you know, in the short term for the medical society. Well, what is prior authorization? <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. So basically what it means is, so like, for example, this patient that I see that has a crooked nose that can't breathe, that has sinus problems, before I can go to the operating room with that patient, fix their nose and make them feel better, we need to have that authorized by the insurance company. So they have to chime in agreeing with me and the patient that this needs to be done. So it's this third mind that's in the office, you know, in addition to the patient and the doctor that basically says, yep, we agree with you, that needs to be done. So essentially getting them to agree with the medical necessity of this procedure. And, the, you know, the, the crazy thing is, in addition to that, 90-some percent of prior authorization requests get approved. And so it's really more just of what seems like a bureaucratic hurdle. And, it's, you know, and, and this is sort of what a lot of people that are cynical would say is that maybe they're just doing it to hope that some of the requests will just get dropped. If we say no to everybody or we say, you know, we make everybody jump through this, some people will stop trying. And then in the end, people, they'll, you know, they'll save money. But what that means is there's a lot of people that have a medical condition that aren't getting treated for it that continue to suffer to accomplish that goal of, of saving money. And that's not right. What about the number of medical personnel, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, people work in your office in the healthcare industry? Is there an adequate number? I mean, is, is the pipeline still flowing with uh, students and people who want to become doctors? Is there a concern in the medical community you don't have enough doctors? Maybe you have too many doctors? What is it? No, it's, it's a great question, and, and all of the data shows that there's a physician shortage uh, in this country, right? And and there's more people retiring than they are entering medical school. And there's multiple factors. One of them is just the expense of it, right? So medical students that graduate now after eight years, you know, four years of undergraduate and four years of medical school before they get their first paycheck as a resident, which isn't even a huge paycheck, but it is at least a paycheck and not tuition bill, um, that the shortage is getting bigger and that bill for that um, the education is a quarter million dollars. And so that right there sort of makes people say, well, geez, do I really want to do that? Knowing what it's like to practice medicine with the red tape that we talked about, you know, the risk reward or the uh, um, sacrifice or cost relative to the reward, people are looking at that for the first time in a long time saying maybe that's not worth it. In addition to that, you know, residency positions are funded um, by the federal government and those have been pretty much capped um, for decades now. You know, there's a little fluctuation where a residency might open here and close there, but overall, the number of people entering the pipeline to provide care for the people in this country is fixed 
that the population continues to go up. And so that's why the physician shortage is something that's very much predicted. And that's why you see a lot of non-physicians sort of asked to provide care. Um, and, and certainly they do a good job of that when they, when they you know, are focused on what they're trained to do. But when you ask a non-physician to replace a physician that didn't go to medical school, that's where you know, eyebrows get raised and we say, are they really qualified to do that just because they're a shortage? Is that the best solution? Or should we you know, look at how we train more physicians? And that's kind of what, what our position is, is that we need to broaden the pipeline and make it easier for people to go to medical school. Has the so-called Flint water crisis had any measurable impact on medical care and health care in the Flint community in, let's say, the last half dozen years that wouldn't have occurred had the Flint water crisis never happened? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's a great question, and I guess I would separate that into a true medical crisis or medical condition, for example, skin conditions due to exposure to heavy metals or chemicals that are in water to sort of mitigate the effect of the heavy metals. So dermatologic conditions, and a lot has been written about that. And then the other sort of potential cognitive impairment that happens, you know, and that's difficult to measure because when we found out about it, that lead was already out of the blood system of these children. And so getting tested and seeing a normal number doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't some period of exposure before. And so then what we're left with is trying to measure the cognitive ability, the school performance, the behavioral issues of these children, and it's always tough to say if you have a kid with, with attention deficit disorder in your classroom that may have been exposed to Flint water, is it normal ADD that happens in, in kids in general, even without lead exposure, or is this a consequence of lead exposure? And that's where nobody can really answer that question. But what we do know is that any kid with that condition needs treatment. And I think that's what the focus has been on is saying cause and effect may not be something that can be proven here, but we have a population that was at risk before and now is more at risk because of exposure. Therefore, let's focus on them and try to um, you know, improve their overall sort of health in general. And that's kind of been the focus of, uh, of all the medical attention on, these, on the children of Flint. What about Legionnaire's disease and its supposed connection to the Flint water crisis? Yep, so that's another great question, and it's another condition just like this where people have Legionnaire's disease, and there's always a certain number of cases, a small number of cases, but every year there's some cases in town. And then when you see a little bit of an uptick, the question is, is that normal statistical variation? Obviously, you're going to have spikes and ebbs and flows in the incidence of certain things, or is it correlated and caused by, uh, you know, some change in, in water source or plumbing infrastructure? And, you know, right now that's embroiled in a legal battle um, to try to, you know, get to the facts and, and do that. But scientifically speaking, you know, I don't, I don't know the data well enough to say that cause and effect has been proven. It may just be correlation. But, you know, now at this point, the courts will end up deciding you know, where the balance lies. Is it just correlated or is it causation? And if it is causation, then they'll decide on, on liability there. But, but, you know, the point is that we get cases of Legionella all the time, and we probably had a little bit more recently, and the question is, what's the reason for that? Right? Is it an infrastructure issue in a particular building, or is it the source of the water supply? These are questions that still have to be answered. Any other issues out there that you are particularly concerned about? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I grew up in Flint. Um, you know this area just as well as I do, actually, probably better than I do. And, and I see it as an area that, you know, there's great things about it. Um, healthcare, you know, we have access to great um, healthcare systems in this community um, and, and statewide even. And, uh, and it's important to sort of make sure that we don't cast a broad sort of judgment of an area just based on certain facets. Um, we've got great health care. We just need to get people plugged into the system, continue to make it robust. And as we mentioned at the very beginning, 
keep it efficient. Right? We have to eliminate waste so that the dollars can be spent where they should be spent, you know, taking care of patients, preventing disease, treating disease, as opposed to dealing with things like prior authorization and, and just going through the red tape part of it. I mean, we spend a ton of money on healthcare in this country. I think it just needs to be rebalanced. Dr. Bobby Mukamala, you've been a terrific guest, given tremendous insightful answers. Thank you so much for being a guest on The Political Insider. Thank you, sir. Very much appreciate it. We'll be back next week.